good to see you. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. <clears throat> My name is Luke. If we have not met, I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm the teaching pastor. Excited to go through Psalm 23 with you, just as Jake said. So if you've got a Bible or device, go ahead and flip there. We did Psalm 24 last week, so we're just going back one psalm um, as we work through our series called Anthem. I like this psalm a lot for probably different reasons um, than you might expect. This is actually going to tackle some pretty hard concepts doctrinally for us today. I don't, <clears throat> while you're turning there, I don't know if you grew up on the old Star Trek like I did before it got all weird and crazy. It was just the old Gene Roddenberry series with Captain Kirk. Such a big Captain Kirk fan, which is why I skipped midterms my freshman year at Texas Tech to go to a trekking conference, they call them trekker conferences back then, that was in Lubbock, Texas, which is where I went to school. And I just, I wanted to meet Captain Kirk. He was gonna be there and I needed to shake the hand of the man that steered the Starship Enterprise. And it was one of the most glorious moments for me to just walk right up to William Shatner and say, man, I am your biggest fan, right? Which I'm sure he's never heard before. Uh, But every time I see William Shatner pop up in the news, I always read it, right? Because he's just kind of one of those odd figures that show up for odd reasons. And not only is he Captain Kirk, he's also the oldest astronaut to ever be in space at the age of 90, going up with Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos. He landed in West Texas and later on described the emotions that he felt looking at Earth from space, which was interesting. He said that the the emotions he felt were so mixed and overwhelming, it was actually difficult for him to explain. He had this overwhelming awe and then this unexplainable sadness at the same time. Um, In fact, he'd say, "I, I can't unsee what I saw. I'll probably never be the same again. And then he quickly turned into humanitarianism and environmentalism. He became a little bit of an activist. He just knew he couldn't go back to normal. This is actually something we see a lot with astronauts. It's called the overview effect. Astronauts, which we've had over 600 of them, by the way. I didn't know that. When they see Earth from space, they see this glowing blue ball with this paper-thin atmosphere, and they see it surrounded by this bleak darkness of nothingness, and it moves them emotionally past what they can describe. They're, They're unable to really explain some of the feelings that they have, but what we have seen is when they come back to Earth, they they, they change. They become environmentalists. They become humanitarians. In fact, if you look at the percentage of astronauts that pick up causes, it's really off the charts. They begin to feel more interconnected with the fellow humans around them because from space, you can't tell the difference from North America and South America. It just looks like one big piece of land. And then they start to feel a little bit more compassion and conviction about protecting whales and trees and oceans. They see it as so fragile. In fact, right now in the virtual reality space, they're developing technology that will provoke this overview effect by putting you in space without being in space. And the main reason they're doing this is because they're trying to promote environmentalism and humanitarianism by kicking off this pseudo-overview effect. I find that all very fascinating. But as I was reading about all of this, I realized how much the gospel has had an overview effect on me. Seeing the world through new eyes and being unable to go back to what I used to be. I I didn't go into space to get this. I didn't put on a VR headset. I just saw the cross. 
The Holy Spirit let me see the cross and how it separated me from bleak surrounding darkness and chaos and death itself. I had immense awe, had overwhelming sadness for what I had done and an overwhelming joy for what God had done and I could not go back to normal. In fact, I too became an activist. So we saw last week in Psalm 24, if you weren't here, how God is actually maker and master of all things in heaven and earth. So the very ground that we walk on today in Knoxville, Tennessee, all the way to these odd-looking constellations that our best cameras and satellites are picking up, everything in between and even further beyond is filled by the majesty, the sovereignty, the creativity, and the mastery of God himself. And this is what we saw last week. That God comes close to us, comes very close to you and me. I mean, we, we saw last week how religions... Of, of the world will tell you that there are ladders to climb if you want to be close to God. Mountains to ascend and scramble if you want to feel God's closest. But what Christianity does is it brings the gospel story that says God has actually descended to you. There's no more climbing. That's the whole idea of the gospel is that climbing has stopped. And we have confidence with this spatial closeness we have with God. And that confidence comes by Jesus who climbed the hill of God for us because our credentials weren't going to cut it. He had pure hands, he had a pure heart, pushes open the doors and the gates to the kingdom and keeps them open for you and for me. But listen, as true as all of that is, and it is true and it's good news, it's still easy for me, maybe for you, to get lost in the overview effect of God being so big and majestic and so huge and immense that he's just kind of far. He's not intimate. He's not really invested in our kind of boring days, the details, how we have to cram our kids in a van, you know, which, where we're going to go to get coffee that day, what we're streaming, what work is like, our neighbors. all. We, we feel like he's dislocated from where we are in just a normal Tuesday afternoon. I think this is how a lot of people see God. Powerful, for sure, dislocated, maybe. So we feel alone. And never is this aloneness more sharp than when we are surrounded by horrors, pains, struggles, difficulties. That's when it gets real. So the big question we're going to look for Psalm 23 to answer for us today is, who is God to you whenever you're roaming the valley of the shadow of death? Who is God to you in that moment? Hey, here's a better question. Where is God? Where is God? And maybe if I can add a tagline, a third question, does he care? Does he care that you're going through that? I mean, does he really care? Does he understand? Does he hurt with you or not? And so this psalm is very powerful. Let's go through it together. It's a psalm of David, and it's actually only six verses. And it starts off this, this way in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Here's the main idea. Jesus is our shepherd. We are his sheep. And he leads us to environments, spaces, both pleasurable, as we see, and miserable at the same time. Right? But he goes before us. And he is with us. Therefore, we have no reason to fear anything, even evil itself. And here's where I'm going to speculate a little bit. I think this might be one of the most recited pieces of Scripture in the world. I think. Maybe. I'll put it up there in the top five for sure. Not because the church loves it so much, but it's because Hollywood loves it so much. This is the, this is the one piece of Scripture that comes up in some do-or-die moment, right? Right before the second half of a football game or before the zombies kick the door in the bombs start dropping, it's usually in some room where everyone's kind of tired and somebody, usually the most spiritually groomed person in the room, just starts barking out Psalm 23 and then eventually everyone mindlessly drones in and joins them and it becomes a chorus of Psalm 23 and then they all leave and they kind of feel a little bit better. That's how we're used to hearing this. Or maybe you grew up seeing it written in papyrus font, of course, on your grandparents' wall calendar, right? with the obligatory deer next to a still pond with green behind them. Wall calendars. Before they were on your phones, friends, they were on paper and they were put up on a wall. That's what a wall calendar is. <laughs> Some of you are like, what? I think it just disappears, it's so common. Kind of like a decoration in your house, like a picture that's been hanging on the wall so long, it's there and it's kind of not there, it's invisible. That's what this psalm has become to the church. Psalm 23 is something we hear and yet we really don't hear at the same time. But Christ is richly centered in this psalm, and it is very helpful for all of us, right? Very helpful. One of the things we see very quickly is that we're led to places where we genuinely do want to go. Green pastures, still waters. These are places of restoration. <laughs> These are great places where he restores our soul, David says. And man, do we need this. Man, do we need this. No one's ever over-restored, over-refreshed. I've not met that person. And I'll t I don't know if you're like me or not, but whenever, I, whenever I'm in a moment that feels like a green pasture moment where I'm feeling restored and refreshed, I actually have a really difficult time enjoying it to its fullness because I'm anticipating its end. Are you like that? You can't really relax and drink in the moment because there's a shot clock on it. It's not gonna last forever. It's hard for us. The good news is, is one day, we will exist in green pastures and still waters forever with no anticipated end. That means we will get to enjoy something like we've never enjoyed anything before because there will be no end to the peace that we feel with God. But until then, God leads us towards restoration. And this is periodic. I mean, there's a frequency to this. This is why pastures and waters are plural in this. It's, it's something that we have to visit often. And it's no longer a place, by the way. It's a person. The gospel says our peace, our restoration is found in Christ. Jesus becomes our rest, which is good when the world is chipping away at us slowly. We need God to lead us where? To a place? No, to himself. To himself. You need this. I need this because no one in here is bulletproof. We're not. And the wear and tear of creation leads us to looking and hunting and hungering for a place of refreshing peace. And that's the truth we've got to understand. When we let this examine our lives a little bit, it tells us that we are finite. We're not indestructible. We're exhausted. We're tired, mentally tired, emotionally fatigued, needy, needy. We need rest. 
So Jesus restores us. And he doesn't need a fancy place to do it either. He doesn't. There's a passage, stay where you're at in Psalm 23, but in Mark 6, there's this cool passage. I usually teach this when I'm working with sick pastors or tired pastors or burned out leaders. And it is Jesus speaking to his disciples who are wiped out. They're very busy, surrounded by ministry. There's a lot going on. John the Baptist had just been killed, so they're carrying that. They're still trying to parse out what that means emotionally. There's a lot of work behind them, and they know there's a lot of work in front of them. And this is what Christ tells them. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Not a beautiful place, but a desolate place. Not even just a desolate place, but one that they were very familiar with. They had, they had been on this water before. They had worked on this water. It was a common piece of property for them. And that's the way some of our green pasture moments are. They don't have to be in the, in the smoky mountains or on some exotic beach. Sometimes it's just going to be caught in stride in a normal day. Because again, it's not a place. It's a person where we find our deepest restoration. But some of us don't follow our shepherd very well in the rest, right? We don't like to admit the fact that we are finite, that we have edges, that our energy is limited, that we're actually just normal, breakable people. Rest is something that we do whenever the work is over, but the work is really never over, right? Rest is something for tomorrow. Not today. So we just keep working and working and working and working. The big question is, what do your green pasture moments look like? What do they look like for you? When we teach a class on this, just our spiritual disciplines class, is virtually a class on what does it look like for you to sit at the feet of Jesus, to grow in your affections for the gospel and the centerpiece of our gospel, which is Christ himself. What does that look like for you? And it matters. It matters, and this is why. This is why it matters. We're not only just led to places we do want to go, we see very clearly in this psalm, we are led into places we do not want to go. Paths that are not self-chosen ones, like the valley of the shadow of death. Right? Death casts a shadow. It looks like sadness. It looks like unforgiveness unreconciled relationships, regret, anxiety, poverty, hopelessness, death itself, right? This is the part of the psalm that will not show up on a wall calendar. It's loaded with fear, loaded with pain. We just skip right through it. You know, there's this great book called Pilgrim's Progress. It was written back in the 1600s. It's actually one of the, I think it's probably the most significant piece of fiction literature ever written. It's one of the most read pieces of literature ever written as well. And John Bunyan, a Christian, wrote this about a man named Christian. Not very creative right there, right? He needed a little bit of help. He just straight up names him. It's an allegory. He's like, we need a name for a guy that goes from salvation all the way to the heaven, which is the celestial city. What are we going to name him? What are we going to name him? Christian. That's what we'll name him, right? So bad. Anyway, Christian makes his way in this story, Pilgrim's Progress, all the way to the valley of the shadow of death. And they even call it that. And this is what he says. We also saw there the hobgoblins and dragons of the pit. We heard also in that valley a continual howling and yelling. 
as of a people in unutterable misery, who there sat bound in affliction and irons, and over that valley hangs the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death also doth always spread his wings over it. In a word, it is every whit dreadful, being utterly without order. That sums it up. That sums it up. Now listen, your hobgoblins and dragons, your cloud of confusion, it looks different, right? That's the whole idea of an allegory. It looks different. It looks like a, a, a stale marriage and a voice in your head telling you it's never going to get better. It looks like poverty. It, it looks like you feeling like you've missed your calling, whatever that is, and there's no more laughter left for you. It, it is the pain that surrounds you when cancer comes into the picture or a miscarriage comes into the picture, or family has cut you off. That's what it looks like. That's what our dragons and hobgoblins look like. And here's the inconvenient truth for you and me, right? Before Jesus leads us through a valley like this, friends, he leads us into a valley like this. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? How do you compute that? How does it sit? How does it make you feel? I'm telling you, when I'm facing dragons right then, in a difficult day, I realized they were hand-selected for me for that day, for that moment, for a specific reason. But I still have questions. Why? Why would God choose that affliction for me? Why would God choose that one? That dark place of howling. Isn't that the question you have? Isn't that the question we all have? <laughs> Listen, it's okay, friends. It's okay to be honest and to wrestle with this. This can stand on its own legs. God, God doesn't need a PR press. He can stand on his own legs. It is totally fine to take your gut level reactions to what he says and honestly just bring them to him and wrestle with him. Totally fine doing that. It's not a sin to do that. And I'm gonna to try to answer this very question today, but friends, you might not even be 100% satisfied with the answer that I think the Bible gives us. You might not. You might not. You might need to wrestle through it. It's totally fine. Totally fine because he tells us why. He says in this psalm that he leads me, this is David, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. That's another way of saying for his own glory. In short, God leads us toward things, into things, through things to make us more like him, to shape us more like him. We are in the shape of Jesus as we travel through various settings, whether it's a setting of peace, like a green pasture, or whether it's a setting of terror and horror. But in all of the settings, whether it's peaceful or difficult, the guiding principles of God is his forever glory and your forever joy. Your forever goodness and his forever glory. But it still begs the question, does he even care? Does he even care what it's doing to me though? Does he care that it hurts me like it does? Certainly, he does. God has no desire to see you in pain, friend. But he does have an overriding desire that is heavier than the desire of seeing you with no pain. Right? He has competing desires, you can say. And I know it sounds weird, but we understand what competing desires look like because we have them as well. You'll have multiple wills, multiple desires. One of them's going to win out. And it will be the heaviest one in that moment. A good example of this is I want my kids to laugh a lot. I want them to have fun 
in our, in our house. So I'm always clowning around. I'm always joking around because I'll do anything to squeeze a laugh, squeeze a smile out of my kids. I just like that. That's, that's just the, the, the dimension I bring to the household. But here's a heavier desire I have, that they grow, that they're healthy in their growth. You know what that means? There will be some seasons where there's no laughter. They'll be suffering instead. And I'm just going to have to let it happen to watch them grow. By the way, this might help some of you interpret why God will want the whole world to be saved, and yet the whole world is not saved. This, is, this was very difficult for me as a younger Christian. First Timothy 2, Paul speaks to it, and he says this, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, all people, says it right there, all people to be saved and to come to know the knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to be redeemed. Okay, but all people are not, are they? No. So that leaves two options. Either God is too weak to accomplish what he wants to do. He has a desire, but he's not got the power to pull it off. Or he has a competing will and desire that is heavier. That God desires one thing more than the salvation of all. And that is the amplification of his own glory. His namesake. Listen, God can deeply want everyone who has ever lived to be saved, but that desire will always defer to his will to glorify himself. Does that cause you to struggle a little bit? I mean, the, the predominant question that you might be asking in something like that that I've definitely asked is it sounds like God is a little bit narcissistic there, that he would want his glory over my comfort, that, that he's okay with my level of affliction and the affliction of others as long as it serves his namesake. I mean, God consumed with his own glory at the cost of my comfort? Come on. But my struggle with this exposes how far above the glory of God I value a pain-free life. It shows that very clearly. Most Christians will locate their comfort and their well-being far above God's glory as their primary concern. And that shows a self-consumption that we have, a selfishness that we have. That when it comes to glory, we want our glory to be supreme and primary, not the glory of God. But what the gospel does is it asks a totally different question. What if God's glory is the best thing for us? The best thing for you, the best thing for me? Well, then he's no longer narcissistic, is he? In fact, this is how Jesus says it, and this is going to be in John 17. You can stay where you're at. John 17 is widely known as the priestly prayer or Jesus' prayer in the garden. And it says this in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Listen to his words here. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay. The glory of God being on display and amplified before all mankind would mean the death of Jesus. That's what it would mean. Jesus wanted the cup to pass from him. He wanted to be with his friends. He, he had a desire. He states it clearly a little bit later on. But then he had a competing desire. That the will of the Father and the glorification of his Father would be primary. 
And God being glorified in that way would be the deepest satisfaction and joy possible for mankind. And I know still this is not a satisfying answer for many people, what I've just said. This will probably satisfy you even even less. (laughs) If this is still a struggle for you, as you grow as a Christian, it will become less of a struggle. It will become less of a struggle. And I know what a cop-out that sounds like. It sounds like, hey, if you don't like what I just said, grow a little bit. You'll figure it out and you'll like it as you grow. I know that's what it sounds like. But the more we grow towards the image of Christ, the more we're fashioned in furnaces and in green pastures, the more we, 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 we adore his glory, the more we anchor our identity in his glory, and the less ours becomes primary. Questions like this become less of a struggle for us. So if we were to take just this basic doctrinal plank and move it into our passage today, it helps us, it helps us quite a bit. Isaiah 48 we see the voice of God saying in verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Why? For my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So it's for the glory of God that we find afflictions and refinings and shadowy valleys and howling and unutterable miseries. And the heart of God, whenever he sees you trafficking through that, he's not giddy. He's not excited. He's not happy that you're twisting in turmoil. He's not happy that you're twisting and, 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 and gutturally just affected by the pain that you're in. Nor is he disinvested in what's going on. But God has a desire and a will to see you shaped for his forever glory, for your forever good. Friend, listen, whatever you're going through right now, and I am positive you're going through something, right? Whatever it is, it's not ignored. It's not under the eye of a thoughtless, uncaring God. It's true you're in the middle of a valley. It's also true he led you into it. And it's also true he's fashioning you towards joy, and that's a big deal. Joy is not happiness. It's weightier than happiness, Happiness like comfort, it just comes and go whenever the environment tells us it's gone, right? If I'm in a room that's getting too hot, my coffee's getting too cold, I'm not happy anymore, right? The environment dictated my happiness or my unhappiness, and that's the way we are with happiness. It's flighty. We chase it like it's the same thing as joy. Joy could be held in a war zone. Joy could be held onto in a concentration camp in the middle of hospice. You can have joy. It's far different. It's larger than what the environment dictates. And so dragons and hobgoblins in life are going to form us to look more like Christ where you and I are living firmly in joy, satisfied with his glory. And in all of this, and it gets better, he is with us. All the thorns you're feeling in life, they're not without meaning. I know the pain can get loud. It can. And it can trick you even to thinking that God is cruel. But not only does he understand totally as a sympathetic priest, he is there as a kind king shepherd. He's with you. I mean, listen, I'm sure you have questions, and I have questions. We all have questions of why we go through specific afflictions and sufferings. You got one family that they, it's miscarriage. That's the theme of their affliction and their struggle. You got another one 
and it's just family disorder. You've got another one over here, and it's poverty. You've got one over here, they've got a great marriage, they've got difficult kids. You've got one over here, they've got great kids, they've got a difficult marriage. All of us have oddly shaped, different, unique afflictions, and if you ask yourself, why am I struggling with this and they're not, that's a normal question to ask, and I have no answer for you. One day you will be with Christ, and you will have a glorified imagination and a glorified mind seen clearly, and he will explain it to you, and your only response to your affliction today in that moment will be, man, you sure are glorious. You sure are good. I, I didn't know. Now I know. Glory to you. We don't have that now, but what we do have now is the knowledge that we're not alone, and whatever that struggle is, you're not alone. You're not alone. The one who leads us into the valley leads us through it. And this is where we start to see Christ a little bit clearly. Because David says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I think these are big reasons for us to find peace here. Jesus has already walked through this valley of the shadow of death. He's already trekked through it. He knows the way. Comes out the other end, knows what he's doing. Our shepherd, he tasted death. He heard the howling. He saw the dragons. He felt the, the sting of death before he removed the stinger for you and me. And now he goes before us and he goes with us and he has a rod and he has a staff. This is what this means. That's something that shepherds would use to guide stupid sheep, right? Because we don't know where we're going. We're making wrong turns all the time. He guides us and then he also beats the wolves off. He keeps us safe. Friends, let me tell you, whenever you're with somebody in deep community, whether it be your comm group or a DNA group you're in or just a friend or a family member, when they're reacting to the hobgoblins of their life, the cloud of confusion, whatever it is, ask them the question, how has Jesus shown that he can be trusted? How? How has he shown you that he is? Don't ask them, hey, can you trust Jesus right now? They know the Sunday school answer to that. Yeah, I can trust Jesus. Don't ask them that. Ask them how they know that. Let them say it. How do you know you can plant both feet on this truth and trust God? How do you know that? Help them walk through that. Help them get to this place where they see that they're not alone. Listen, Jesus defeated death. And ever since death died, life has never been the same. And it's with a rod and with a staff that he accompanies us through our valleys. And it gets even better than that because he prepares a table for us. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. I know that sounds weird. That's symbolic. And he says, my cup overflows. So we have this shepherd who's also a lamb. Make a meal for you and me that can never be canceled. And this meal is in front of our watching enemies. All of it sounds a little bit strange, right? It's a meal of celebration. We know that because there's oil, which is symbolic of blessing and anointing and wealth in God's presence, and then we see a cup that is overflowing, which means endless wealth, endless joy, endless satisfaction, right? It's a meal of celebration because it's with Jesus, and here it's going to get weird, and it is Jesus. He is the meal. Again, that won't show up on the wall calendar either. But John 6.54, Jesus has a moment that confuses everybody. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Oh, gosh, his poor disciples right here. What were they thinking? Have you ever watched the news, 
and seen an athlete or a celebrity or a politician say something that you could see it in their eyes. They really thought it was going to be smart. The way they delivered it, the way they stuck the landing, they thought this is, this is going to be good. And it just didn't come out quite like they, you think, fella, you needed some help there. That didn't say what you think it said, that that's not what, that's not accomplishing what you wanted it to accomplish. I always imagine that being the vibe whenever Jesus said this, you know, Peter and the guys going, oh, he said that. It's not like the poll numbers are bad right now, but that's going to get out. Like that's going to go viral. You said we have to be cannibals in order to be raised up on the last day. I don't think that's going to play well. But listen, this is what he's talking about right here. When we take communion, it's in the face of our enemies, even today. When we take communion today, which we will hear shortly, it's in the face of our enemies. All the spiritual powers and principalities, all the forces of the unseen evil, they see what we are doing. It's not just us watching it. It's cosmically displayed. Jesus becomes our peace offering. He is our peace offering. He is our cup that is overflowing. When you are in pain in your valley of shadow and death, you are in communion with a God who came close to you, experienced pain with you, and is showing the way through it all. It is the victory of Jesus. And I know it feels like you could be eaten alive, but there's a rod and a staff. It's there. I know you feel like wolves can grab you, the rest of your world is just downhill. Your best days are behind you. Friends, your best days haven't even started yet. If you are buried in Christ, if you love Jesus, this is as bad as it gets, friends. This is it. It only gets better. Life hasn't even started yet, right? We have the oil of blessing, a cup that overflows. That table, the meal with Jesus, can never be removed from God's people, ever. And it's on open display before all the cosmic powers, both good and evil. And so when we take communion together, we echo this and then we premeditate it. We echo it by reflecting on what God has done with his broken body and his spilt blood. And then we look forward to a time where our cup will overflow forever and we can never have to anticipate the end of our joy because there will never be an end to our joy. So when we take communion today, I want you to think about all the howling that you hear the struggle, and then I want you to hear the footsteps of your shepherd right next to you. Go ahead and sense the bleak darkness around you, and then yet know that he is with you. Oh, he's right there. You, you have not taken a wrong turn. He's right there, guarding you, protecting you, very close, tightly wound in the moment. There is evil around you. You don't have to fear it. That's what the psalm tells us. Why? This. This. Not, not a dumb cup, but what this represents. This is a receipt of what a better shepherd has done for you and me. That's all it is. It's, a, it's the receipt of a body that has been smashed and demolished. It should have been us, right? And it's, it's the receipt of blood that was poured out to cover sins that we do all the time without even thinking about it. Since the time we were born to the time we'll die. It's beautiful what he has done for us. Our better shepherd whose rod and staff protect us and guide us into forever. But a passage like Psalm 23 pushes me to the point of repentance. I have to. I have to repent. So do you. 
So the big question that we're going to tackle as we head into communion is where is it that you find you have the most bitterness with the shepherd because of your valley? What is it? What, what dragon is convincing you that God is not worth trusting? What is the affliction, the furnace, that is telling you it's okay to be bitter with God? And I've been there all week, last two weeks. I've been thinking about when the pastures aren't really all that green anymore. The water has rapids now. There's rocks and dumb animals in it. I just want out because <laughs> I feel doomed. I feel doomed. I can't make sense of it. I can't, I can't see past it. I can't see past the pain, the sleeplessness. I can't see past the poverty, the sadness. I, I feel attacked. I feel alone. And that's when I have to repent. That's when I have to stop and pivot and say there's meaning in this valley. There's meaning. It's hand-selected, custom-crafted for me, for this moment, for my forever goodness and God's forever glory. God is framing me to look more like him. I want to be like Paul that says in 2 Corinthians, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. He's describing the valley of the shadow of death. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Maybe you have to repent where I need to repent. And listen, if you are far from Jesus, maybe you're just traveling around this thing called Christianity, you're looking, you're not sure, you're not certain, you're not committed, that's for sure, but you're open. I want you to hear this. God desires that you become redeemed. He desires your new life, but he will be glorified either way. He'll be glorified either way. And this is how this works. In your salvation, he's glorified because he shows mercy and grace and the justice falls on Christ. And he's glorified. But even in your rebellion, if you carry it all the way to the grave, the justice doesn't fall on Christ, it falls on your head and he will be glorified then as well. God will be glorified either way. Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Friend, just choose life. I'm just going to echo Moses here. The valleys in life, they don't go anywhere. You're still going to be, you, you probably have more valleys, to be very honest with you, but you won't be alone anymore. <laughs> You'll have a shepherd there. He will guard you and protect you. At the very end of this little episode of Christian's walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as he comes out the other end, he sings a song. You know how I feel about songs. Not a fan. But, so I pulled one stanza out of the very back side of it because I felt like it was appropriate. Christian sings, Dangers in darkness, devils, hell, and sin did compass me while I this veil was in. Yea, snares and pits and traps and nets did lie my path about. That worthless, silly eye might have been caught entangled and cast down. But since I live, let Jesus wear the crown.